You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, you can open them up to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. We're continuing in our series on the parables of Luke and probably have another four before we'll transition to the book of Exodus. So I'm um, excited to see where God has us over the coming weeks. I'll actually be uh, out next week. Um, my family's going to be out of town, and so we're going to be blessed to hear um, Chris Ellis bring the word next week. So thankful that he's willing to step in. Our other el- our, el- our elders are uh, preparing sermons that are going to go along with our Exodus sermon in the fall. So they're going to be preaching again uh, coming up here uh, in a few weeks as well. And so I asked Chris to step in next week so that they could continue working on sermons that are coming in the coming weeks. And so excited to hear from different individuals in our church as we continue to uh, have our faith strengthened, as we continue to learn more. Um, You know, I feel like it's such a great privilege and honor to bring the Word of God to you guys. As we were singing uh, even this morning about coming and beholding Him, I feel like God uses the teaching of His Word to help us do that, to Uh, look into God's Word to see the truths that are found there and to be able to come and behold those truths. And so I consider it an honor every time I get to come up here and and teach to you guys uh, because I feel like God's using that as a way for you to come and behold Him. And so hopefully today uh, we'll continue in that uh, manner. Luke chapter 11 is where we're going to be today, um, looking at a parable that fits in with uh, an overall teaching that Jesus is doing on prayer. Um, and it flows from uh, him praying himself and, and a disciple observing this and then prompting a question about how do we pray, Lord? Teach us to pray. And so that's kind of the context of where Jesus goes this morning for us. He's teaching us how to pray based on what a disciple had seen him doing himself. Luke chapter 11, verse 1 says, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, One of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey And I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Our summary sentence for today, Jesus teaches us to pray with a focus on the increase of his fame and the growth of his kingdom, meaning we are to ask for those things that will support both while trusting that he will hear, answer, and provide in only good ways. Jesus teaches us to pray with a focus on the increase of his fame and the growth of his kingdom, 
meaning we are to ask for those things that will support both while trusting that he will hear, answer, and provide in only good ways. For our kids, Christians can pray and know that God will always answer in good ways. The flow of the passage that we're we're looking at today, so verses 1 through 13, the flow of the passage shows us a pattern for how to pray. So when Jesus is is questioned about, hey, teach us how to pray, he gives gives in response a pattern that we can follow for how to pray. But then he also fits a parable in here in the middle of it, a parable about why we should pray, kind of a motivation for why we should pray. Uh, We pray to a God who hears and a God who acts. So a pattern to pray, and, and not words that are supposed to be replicated every time we pray. Certainly no harm in praying the, wor- the, the words of the Lord's Prayer verbatim from time to time, um, right? Nothing wrong with praying Scripture word for word, but not a magical mantra that we're supposed to recite back to God daily as though those words become magical in generating a response from Him, right? Instead, it's a pattern to follow, uh, a parable that we see as far as the motivation for why we pray, and then a reminder here at the end of this section about how God answers our prayers, right? He answers them with good intent. He answers them in such a way that we can trust him when we come to him with our needs. And so we're going to see that flow of the passage kind of break down today by looking at all three sections um, this morning. We'll start by looking at our need to replicate Jesus's prayer pattern. We want to replicate Jesus's prayer pattern. Now, notice well that when we look at this passage, there's an emphasis on God as our Father at the beginning of this section, and it also concludes with an emphasis on Him as Father, right? That we're to address Him as Father when we pray, and then also to rely upon the responses that we see from Him as though He is a Father giving to us as His children. Um, So there's a heavy emphasis on seeing God as our Father when we come to him for our needs. And so we want to see first a responsibility that we have to replicate Jesus's prayer pattern. He tells his disciples to pray and to say when they pray these type of things. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. These these things that he mentions in his pattern of prayer are to be priorities that guide how we pray each time. So again, not words that we say each time, but priorities that do guide our prayers each time, with a major priority being God's kingdom and the effects and impacts it is having, right? So there's a a heavy emphasis here at the beginning on God and his name and the reverence given to him, as well as the expanding kingdom that he is bringing to this world. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. There's a need here to see God's kingdom as the focal point of all that we think and ask, right? Our, our prayers, before we even come to God, our prayers should be prioritized in such a way and even filtered through this idea that we desire for God's fame to become great. We want his name to be known. We want others to come and submit to him in the ways that we have submitted to him. We want his kingdom to come. We want his, his kingdom to impact this world as we wait for Jesus to come in his, in his full glory. A need to see God's kingdom as the focal point of all we think and ask. But also, there's a need here for daily bread, right? These daily needs that we have. But it's not just bread. It's not just physical needs that are mentioned here. There's daily mercy that's needed as well. The idea of our sins 
regularly being forgiven. And then also this idea of protection from daily dangers is mentioned. The idea of not being led into temptation, to be protected, to be delivered from opportunities to sin. So there's the mention of, hey, we have fallen into sin, right? We need to be forgiven. And then there's also this this appeal to, to God, give me protection so that there's not further sins that are committed, right? Forgive me for where I've been at fault. Protect me from future faults as well physical provision, a need for for moral perfection, a need for us to be cleansed and made right. And we know that it's through the blood of Jesus that that's possible, that we can come and confess our sins and he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And this divine protection that's needed. There's this weightiness that we should be reminded of here, that there are temptations that all of us face. How will we handle those? How will we respond to those? Jesus says, pray like this. Pray with this type of pattern. Number one, our prayers should be shaped by a desire for God's glory. Our prayers should be shaped by a desire for God's glory. Jesus reminds us of that family intimacy that I've already mentioned when we pray. We're praying to our Father. We're praying to our Father, and it's easy for us to miss this privilege because we've grown up, most of us, hearing that. Uh, But don't miss the privilege of being able to address God the Creator, God the Sustainer of the universe, as your dad as your father, as this deep, intimate, personal relationship that we have with him. He's not some far-off, distant object that, that remains separated from his creation. No, he reveals himself as an intimate, loving father who cares for his people. Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. Galatians chapter 4, verse 6 reminds us of this. It says, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Paul talks about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit being given to us in our hearts so that, so that he can even cry out to God himself through us, through our prayers. Right? The end of this passage talks about the Lord gives the Holy Spirit to those who ask. Galatians 4 says the Holy Spirit has been given to us as believers to where we can cry out, Abba, Father. We can come to God with an intimate type of relationship. Romans chapter 8, verse 15. Romans chapter 8, verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We get to speak to God as a trusting child would his dad. We are sharing in the sonship of Jesus who instructs us to pray like this. Man, such an important concept for us to see right here at the beginning, that we are praying to our Father. Just as a young child would come to his dad making requests with trust and confidence that his dad knows him, that his dad cares for him, that his dad hears him and will respond to him, we approach God in the same way. He is our heavenly father. Jesus says, pray that his name would be hallowed, that his name would be honored and revered by all. That's to be a motivation of our prayer, that we want to pray and ask for things and see God move and work in certain ways where God's fame is made known, that his glory spreads over this earth. We're praying for God's name to be honored by all, 
which implies that we need to be doing our job of honoring his name ourselves, right? If we're praying that God's name and his fame would be known on this earth, we ourselves must be bought into that type of program. We should be hallowing his name. We should be holding his name with great respect and great honor. People that watch our lives and see us, right? See the way that we talk, see the way that we act outside of this setting, right? Our students, for those of you that are, that are in school, in a physical setting where you're around other students throughout the day, those students should see your life. They should see the things that you talk about at the lunch table. They should see the way that you treat other people and see God's name being hallowed, right? That you fear God. Our prayers need to be rooted in good theology about why we should be honoring him, right? The things that we've sung about this morning are exactly why we leave today loving him and serving him and submitting to him. He's a God who has rescued us from our sin and made us into his children. Others should see us treating him like our father, trusting him and submitting to him. Jesus says, pray this way. Pray that God's name would be hallowed. Secondly, pray that his kingdom would come. There should be a longing inside of us for the solutions of his kingdom, his return, his, the, the resurrection that he comes offering to us, sickness and sin and death being removed, eternal life being granted to us. We should be actively living out the characteristics of his kingdom now before it comes. Right? So we should be living in submission to him now, knowing that we're going to be living in submission to him fully when he comes. Right? So hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Lord, we are submitting ourselves to you, and we're, we're praying and asking that you would work and move in such a way where others would submit to you as well. Jesus says, pray this way. Our prayers should be shaped by a desire for God's glory. Number two, our prayers should reflect a dependency for our daily needs. We're coming to him for our daily needs, even though oftentimes we, we think of our daily needs sometimes already being provided, right? In the Middle East at this time, there was probably more of a, uh, a need to think about tomorrow's needs today because they didn't have necessarily the pantries that we have. They didn't have the, the deep freezers that we have to where they could store up daily needs for a long period of time. I mean, most of us could survive on what we have right now for, for many days and many weeks and perhaps even many months before we would ever feel the impact of, what am I going to eat tomorrow, right? Even in that state, when, when 2020 hit and the pandemic was upon us in, the, in its first days, there was mass rush to the grocery store as though we needed tomorrow's food today. We already had it, right? Most of us already had it. We had it for months already before we ever knew there was going to be a crisis. And yet, immediately when we thought that our, our daily needs were threatened, I mean, survival mode kicked in, and we were at the grocery store filling our baskets, me included, right? Me included. Like, it was this, this need to store and to, to store up to make sure that our daily needs would be provided. The reminder here, though, is that we pray for our daily needs rather than being anxious about them. Our prayers should reflect a dependency for our daily needs, remembering who the source is for our good gifts. All things we need to sustain us on a daily basis come from the loving hand of our Father. Matthew 6 challenges us not to be anxious about what we're going to eat, what we're going to drink, what we're going to wear. Instead, Jesus says, pray this way. Pray for those things because they are needs. You need those things. Pray to the one who gives them. 
Don't be anxious and worrisome about them. Instead, bring them to the one who provides. Pray for these things. Don't be anxious for them. And then number three, he tells us our prayers should express a sensitivity towards sin. Our prayers should express a sensitivity towards sin. Verse 4 says, Forgive us of our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. It's very easy for our prayers to be honed in on verse 3, where we're bringing our daily needs, or what we perceive to be our daily needs. Oftentimes we, we go outside of what are true needs and categorize other things to be needs when maybe they're not, right? We don't always find ourselves praying for God to work and move and act in our life, even if it's different than our preferences, so that his name is hallowed, so that his kingdom is coming, right? We don't typically pray that way. We're not prone to, and we're forgetful to pray that way. We're also forgetful to pray in regards to our sins. A lot of times we think in terms of our sins being covered completely by the blood of Christ, which they are, right? But we think about them being forgiven in the past, right? And we don't remain mindful of the fact that we are doing things daily that are, uh, that are not in submission to him, that need to be confessed to protect ourselves really from the hardness of sin, not to, to confess them as though, hey, they're not forgiven until they're confessed, right? This isn't, hey, don't forget about those sins that still need to be confessed today because otherwise they're not forgiven. I mean, we totally believe in the security of the believer here that when you're saved, you are saved, Right? The blood of Christ covers all of your sins, past, present, and future. Right? I went to school with some kids who, uh, in high school, they would talk about the theology of their church, and they truly believed if, if sins were unconfessed, they were not forgiven. And so they would, they would labor at night trying to recall, what did I do today that needs to be confessed? Because if I forget something, it's not truly forgiven. We don't, we don't believe that. We don't believe Scripture teaches that, Right? Scripture doesn't teach that, but it does teach that if we're not careful, we will become hardened to sins that maybe we've already been forgiven of. If we're truly a believer, we've been forgiven of them, but we're not exempt from being hardened to some of those things. And so confessing them keeps us soft, keeps us sensitive to what God has called us to be. And so Jesus says, pray this way, pray for the forgiveness of your sins. Forgiveness is commonplace in a believer. Believers need to be forgiven, and they need to be forgiving as well. This, this passage alludes to other places where Jesus talks about, if your sins are to be forgiven, you must be forgiving yourself, right? You can't claim that your sins are forgiven if you're unwilling to forgive others. A sign of truly being forgiven is that you are willing to forgive others, right? There's, there's plenty of passages where Jesus talks about that. We won't, we won't go to those this morning. But Jesus says to pray in such a way with a mindset that I can even come asking for forgiveness because I've already extended forgiveness to those in my life. It's a reminder to us that we can't come asking for forgiveness if we're not willing to extend forgiveness as well. And it's a good time to just kind of pause and think, are there people in my life that need to be forgiven by me? They've wronged me and I need to forgive them. Why? Because I've done things today that I need forgiveness for as well. Right? Jesus says, pray this way. Pray this way. Forgive us of our sins that we've committed, personal awareness of wrongs that we have done. Protect us from sins we've not committed. 
the threats and the attacks that are to come, lead us not into temptation. Don't forget, we were just in Luke 17 a couple of weeks ago. Luke chapter 17, that that parable of the uh, unworthy servant starts with the idea where he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come. Jesus says they are going to come in Luke 17. They are coming. Woe to the one who brings them. But listen, they are coming. Luke chapter 11, he's saying, pray this way. Lord, lead us not into those temptations that are to come. Protect us from those sins that we've not yet committed. We need deliverance to not fall to them. Preserve us in the trials. Keep making ways for us to escape temptations. Because it's a promise in Scripture, right? He'll, he'll never put us in a spot where we cannot escape the temptation. He always makes a way of escape. We pray this way. We pray, forgive us of our sins. We've forgiven others. Lead us not into temptation. Preserve us from those things that would cause us to sin. I think there's even an allusion here to the idea of keep us forgiving others who sin against us. Keep us in a mindset of forgiving because if I'm not forgiving others, then I'm led into sin. There's a temptation to not forgive and a temptation to fall into bitterness. Instead, we need to let our own experience of forgiveness drive us to keep forgiving more. That's the pattern that Jesus gives us to pray. We pray with a focus on his kingdom, Lord, do what you need to in my life so that your name is made great, that it is known amongst other people. Use my life to have your kingdom come now, right? Forgive us of our sins as I'm trying to forgive others of of the sins against me. Give me daily bread. Give me the sustenance that I need. You're the source for it, right? As hard as I work, the fruit of my labor only comes because you choose to give it. Lead me not into temptation, Forgive me of where I've wronged you. Lead me not into further wrongs. The pattern that Jesus gives us for how to pray. But then in verse five, he transitions to a parable that I think gives us insight and motivation as to why we should pray this way. Why should we come praying to our heavenly father? And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Point number two here is to respond with patient persistence. To respond with patient persistence. Now, the parable's interesting because I think it, it can be confusing as to what exactly is happening here and what the motivation to pray really is. So let's talk about the context for just a minute about this parable. Obviously, it's coming on the heels of Jesus' teaching about prayer, so there's certainly things to be learned and gleaned about our own prayer life from this parable. But I think what's at stake here is the concept of hospitality. You've got an individual who a friend shows up at his house and he's got nothing to feed him. And, and hospitality was a big deal and remains a big deal, even more so in, than in our culture, but in Middle Eastern culture. The idea of hospitality. Those of you that have been overseas maybe have experienced this. I know I have when I've been on mission trips. You, you, go in, you come into a person's house and it doesn't matter if it's a mealtime or not. There's almost this expectation that food must be brought out. 
food must be brought out. There has to be some type of deliverance on, uh, on food and drink as, as a sign of hospitality. Right? So this guy shows up at midnight when there would be no opportunity to go out and get those items. So he's kind of caught off guard. He's not prepared. He doesn't have a deep freezer, so he doesn't have the ability to just pull from his excess to give. And so he, in kind of a state of panic, goes asking his friend at midnight, hey, I need some food to give to my friend. So one friend needs to show hospitality but can't, so he goes asking a neighbor to help him. And that neighbor is called upon to help. Now Jesus poses this in the form of a question. He says, how many of you, how many of you, uh, if you had a friend, um, or which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, so he says, put yourself in position here. You are the individual who a friend shows up at your house and you don't have food. And he says, how many of you would have a friend that you would go to at midnight making a request who would turn you away? How many of you have a friend like that? And I think the idea and the implication of the question is, is that you, you wouldn't. You wouldn't have a friend who would turn you away. Now, if you're like me, there, there's times when you screen phone calls based on what you're doing, right? And you try to determine the priority of who's calling and what they might possibly need to determine whether you're going to answer it or not, right? And, and I'm going to tell you, like, once the kids are bed, in bed and I'm kind of done for the night and the phone rings, it's hard to answer it sometimes, right? Because in your mind, the day is over and I'm in relax mode. I'm not about to get off the couch or out of my bed to do anything right now. Like, I'm finished. The day is done. The sun is set. The kids are in bed. Whatever the rest of the night holds, it's for me. It's my time, right? But in this culture, even more so than our culture, because most of us are probably going to answer, especially if the phone rings multiple times, we're going to think, oh, this person really needs something. Now, if you only call me one time after nine o'clock, the chances of me answering are low. You call me three times, then I'm probably going to answer because I'm assuming it's an emergency, right? But I think in this culture, there's a little bit more of a, a, a mindset towards hospitality. And, and I think what, what the motivation here is, uh, he says, look, I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. Yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. So Jesus says there is a motivation for this neighbor to help the friend. And it extends beyond just the fact that they're friends. This word is really hard to interpret. Impudence. Sometimes it's translated as persistence or shamelessness. Um, there's not a clear-cut answer for what this word means in our language because this is the only time it's used in the New Testament. So we don't even have other context to go to to say, oh, this is what it means here, right? Some people would say that the, the, the term is applied to the individual asking, that there's a shamelessness, that he's willing to come at midnight, and because he's shameless in his request, that he's asking at night and he's persistent in asking, that the neighbor says, I'm just going to get up to make him go away. Right? Other people think that the word applies to the individual being asked, that he's motivated to get up, not even because they're friends, but because he doesn't want it to become known that he was unwilling to help his friend. Right? For the sake of you being able to tell other people that I helped you, I'm going to get out of bed because I wouldn't want you to tell others, hey, I tried calling Adam and I couldn't even get that guy to answer the phone, so I went to my next friend and he was willing to answer me. Thank you for being a good friend because Adam's not a good friend. Right? So which one is it? 
I don't know that it's totally clear. I don't know that it's totally clear. Jesus says, you probably won't, at least in this time, you probably won't have a friend who will turn you away if you come asking at midnight. He will be motivated to help you. Is he motivated because you're persistently knocking on his door at midnight? Maybe. Is he motivated because he doesn't want to be put to shame by being known as the individual who wouldn't help? Maybe that's part of it too. And I don't think either one are at war against each other because I think we see the idea in Scripture collectively together that both could be accurate. If you flip over to Luke chapter 18, you get another parable on prayer. It says in verse 1, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Now, this parable seems to have the idea of persistence, that we continually come to our Father. Now, it is reminded to us that we don't come in the same way that a widow comes to an unjust judge, where she has to wear him down to where he finally relents and says, okay, I'll give you justice. Jesus emphasizes we come, and even if we come persistently, we can expect a speedy response, that he wants to give justice to his people. So there, there is the idea of persistence here. I think, too, it's important to note that when a character in a parable plays or uh, alludes to the position of God, um, it's always meant to pale in comparison to how God would really act, right? So even in this case where uh, the judge is kind of being used as one who is responding with justice, Jesus is quick to say God would be way better in that situation than that judge, right? That judge only responds because that woman keeps bothering him. He says, God's not like that. God is better. As an administrator of justice, he is better because he cares about his people. This judge has no care for her, and yet he will even respond. God cares so much for his people, he will most certainly respond. So in this case, the neighbor kind of plays the role of God here because there's requests being made, the neighbor responds. Is he responding because of the persistence of the neighbor knocking? Maybe, but I also think there's a piece where God responds for the sake of his name. He wants to be known as a God who cares for his people. He wants to be known as a God who cares for his people. See where we're at. Parable point. God is ready, able, and willing to respond to our needs because of our relationship to him, but even more so because of his desire to make his name known as one who provides for his people. Does the neighbor act because of the persistence or because he wants to avoid his own shame? Are we called to be shameless in our persistence to pray? Is God motivated to avoid shame in responding to us? We saw that we're to pray for God's name to be hallowed. I think it's both. I think that we should be persistent in our prayers, but we can be persistent in our prayers knowing we're not trying to wear God down to respond to us. We can be persistent in our prayers knowing that he will act. 
he will move, not just because we're a friend of his, not just because we're his sons and daughters, but because of his great name. He wants his name to be known in certain ways. Think about uh, how Exodus 32 points to this. Exodus 32, when the children of Israel sin and they create the golden calf and they're worshiping because Moses is up on the mountain and he's delayed in coming. There's the conversation about, hey, maybe we need to wipe out these people and start over with Moses, right? God still keeps his promises, but he starts over with Moses. And Moses says, what about your name, right? What about your name? Because if you do that, the Egyptians and other nations are going to see this and they're going to have an opinion about it. The Bible says that because of his name, he spared the people. He spared the people for the reputation of his name. 1 Samuel chapter 12. 1 Samuel chapter 12. Israel crying out to God for a king. Crying out with wrong motivation. They've sinned. Look at this interesting passage in 1 Samuel chapter 12 verse 19. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. Right? The, the, the people of Israel confessing to Samuel, we need prayers. We need you to pray like Jesus is going to tell us to pray in the future. Pray that God would forgive us of our sins. Because we have sinned. We have added evil. We have, we have been motivated evil by evil to ask for ourselves a king. Look what 20, verse 20 says. And Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. That is a weird sentence. Because it seems to go against everything that we know to be true, right? Do not be afraid, you have done all this evil, right? It doesn't say, do not be afraid, you've done enough good to offset this evil. It just says, do not be afraid, you have done all this evil. Yet, do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart, and do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. Look at verse 22. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Look what John Piper has to say. It was God's good pleasure to join you to himself in such a way that his name is at stake in your destiny. It was God's good pleasure to possess you in such a way that what happens to you affects his name. Man, that should give us such confidence and assurance, right? We're not coming to God banking on a friendship. We're not even coming to God banking on a father-son relationship. We are coming to God and God is moving and acting for his namesake, which gives us like extra confidence, like double layers of confidence here. It's not just that he has made me his son that I can trust him. I can trust him because he, is, he has bound himself to me, to where my destiny, the way my life turns out, the way he does or doesn't provide for me says a whole lot about him. And he is in the interest and the business of making his name great. He is in the interest and business of bringing his kingdom here Right, So we pray to a God who gets up and acts, yes, because we persistently ask him, but he's also getting up and asking and responding to what we ask because he wants to provide because it makes his name further known on this earth. He moves and acts 
I've told you guys before, God doesn't owe us anything except for the fact that he has obligated himself to keep promises to us. He didn't have to make the promises, but he chose to. And because he's a God who does not lie, because he is a God who does not change, he has obligated himself to keep the promises. He has to. He has to. His name's at stake. And he will not let his name be profaned. He will not let his name fail. This is the reassurance to us. Why do we pray? Because God will get up in the middle of the night. He will move and act, not just because of our friendship with him, but for his name's sake, he will move and act. He always honors his name. He remains committed to his people to honor his name. Number one, the parable reminds us that we pray to a God who is able to meet our needs. He has, just like this neighbor, has the food that the neighbor needs to provide for the other friend. God has what we need. Our God is a better neighbor who can abundantly supply all that we need. Yes, there's a persistence to what we ask, but there's a confidence. We're not trying again to to wear God down and to make him move. No, we come with confidence. We can continually ask knowing that he will move. Going back to Luke. Going back to Luke chapter 11. I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks it will be opened. Be persistent in your prayers, knowing that he will move and act for his name's sake. Those who keep asking, seeking, and knocking believe God will answer. Number two, the parable reminds us that we pray to a God who desires to meet our needs. Not only does he have the ability to do it, he desires to do it. He finds pleasure in taking care of his people as a means of making his goodness known to all. The way he cares for us is a witness to the world. He takes care of his people. I hope that we'll see that even further when we go to the book of Exodus and we see him gather that people for the very first time and we begin to see how he works and moves and cares for them for his namesake. For his namesake, he works and moves and provides for his people. So pray the pattern that Jesus gives to us. Respond with patient persistence knowing that he will respond for his namesake. And then number three, recognize God's positive provision. His positive provision. God says, or Jesus says, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? Again, the questions that Jesus is asking is, this doesn't happen, or this isn't true, or this is not the case, right? You wouldn't have a friend who would turn you down at midnight. You wouldn't have a father who would give his son uh, a serpent instead of a fish, or a scorpion instead of an egg. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children... If you then who are evil, who know how to get up out of bed at midnight to help a friend, how much more does God do it? How much more is God willing, ready, and able to do it? If you know how to give good gifts to your children, if you know how to give good gifts to your friends and neighbors, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? He responds and He hears and responds to our prayers. And number two, He's good in all of His responses. He hears and responds, and he's good in all of those responses. Good answers to all of our requests. No evil substitutes. We don't ask for a fish and get a serpent. We don't ask for egg and get scorpions. Not just good answers, but the best answers. He knows us and loves us like a father knows his child. We never need to be afraid of the answers that he gives. The pattern to pray, 
the parable that helps motivate us to know why we should pray, because a father that loves us will get up in the middle of the night because he cares about his name. He wants to be known as a dad who cares for his children. And then we're reminded that he only answers in good ways. He only gives good to his children. But I want to kind of end with this. Because if you're like me, you read something like this and you say, well, what about the inconsistencies that I practically see? Right? I mean, we're praying every, every Sunday for a variety of prayers and they are answered differently. Right? There doesn't seem to be any consistency in how God answers prayers. Right? We pray for sickness and some people are healed and some people aren't. We pray for family additions, right? We pray for some of our sing- we pray for all of our singles to get married. Some of them get married, some of them don't. We pray for our young married couples to have kids. Some of them have kids, some of them don't. Why is there inconsistencies if we're serving the same God? Right? Why, why does he not answer the same way? If these are needs, why doesn't he meet the needs in the same ways? I put in my notes there's a universal truth that we can't miss here. A fallen world brings challenges. Right? A fallen world brings challenges, sickness, barren wombs, conflict in relationships where people were heading towards marriage and, and, the, and the, the relationship is severed, death. A fallen world brings challenges that God only seems to temporarily overcome for kingdom purposes. Meaning God does not ever give us a promise that he will overcome this fallen world for his people in all times. It does tell us that he at times will temporarily overcome those challenges for kingdom purposes. Lazarus is a great example, right? Mary and Martha were like, hey, Jesus, if you had been here, our, son, our, our brother wouldn't have died, right? Like you could have healed him. That's the case for anybody that's had a loved one die. For those of us that have family members right now that are staring at death, right? They're sick. We're praying for their healing. God may choose to heal. He may choose not to. We know that he resurrects Lazarus from the dead, brings him from death to life, not just for Mary and Martha, not just because they cried a healthy amount of tears, not because they asked him so many times to do it, You read the rest of that chapter and you find that people believe in Jesus because of the healing, right? It's even part of the motivation for why they move towards killing Jesus so that he dies in our place for our sins because of the resurrection of Lazarus. He does it for kingdom purposes. Does he love Mary and Martha? Yeah. He loves his name more though. And he is working and moving for kingdom purposes. So there's inconsistencies in how we see God answer and respond. Lazarus died again. So even though God healed, it was temporary. We're, we're subject to this fallen world. We can pray all we want to for sickness to go away. It'll never go away until Jesus comes back. He may heal some of us for extended periods of time, but there's coming a day we will die unless he comes back first. He works for kingdom purposes. So here's some important truths to remember as you're trying to reconcile the inconsistencies that you even see in your own prayer life for how God responds. Number one, prayer is not a way for us to make God aware of our needs because he knows before we ask. Matthew 6, 8 tells us he knows before we even ask what our needs are and what our wants are. So prayer is not a way for me to inform him. We don't come to him and make him aware of something that, that he didn't already know, right? We're not bringing a Christmas list to him like we might would bring it to a parent who says, hey, I don't know what to get you for Christmas. Tell me what you want. 
right? God already knows what we want. He already knows what we're going to ask before we ever ask it. So prayer is not a way for us. So we don't have to worry about, oh man, God didn't know I needed that because I didn't tell him, right? He knows what we need. Number two, prayer is a means for us to receive the very things we need. And by not asking, we may not receive. James chapter 4, 2 says, you, you have not because you ask not. So there is the, the perception and the possibility here. And, and I would say it's, it's valid because it's said in God's word that there are potentially things that you don't have because we haven't asked for them. We haven't submitted ourselves to the fact that he is the giver of good gifts. We haven't asked for those things. And therefore, he has not given us those things. And until we ask, he will withhold those things potentially from us. But number three, prayer is also not a way to pull God's lever to receive whatever we want. But instead, a way for God to give whatever he wants. Prayer is not a way to pull God's lever to receive whatever we want. But instead, a way for God to give whatever he wants. When we would go to, um, whenever we go to a restaurant, Mike and C's, any of these restaurants that have those cheap toy machines that are meant to steal parents' quarters because the kids are enamored with the glowing lights and the, the promise of possessions that rarely do you actually ever get, right? My kids will ask for quarters and they'll say, oh, I'm going to get this because I want to go get that. And it's like, you know, that's probably not what's going to come out of that machine when you put the quarter in right? Like there's a whole host of other things. The odds of you getting that one thing that you can see at the top of the pile is probably not also at the bottom of the pile. Prayer is not our attempt to put quarters into God's machine and pull the lever and get what we want. We do pray and put quarters into the machine and pull the lever and God gives. He gives what he wants though. And it's our responsibility to take that gift and say, this is what's good for me. I thought I was asking for something else, but this is what God gave to me. This is what, God, what is good for me. Now, the, the machine at Mike and C's doesn't know what's good for you. It gives you junk. Gives you junk and takes your quarters, right? But God gives sometimes the exact opposite of what we've asked. But he gives it because it's good. I put in my notes just a, a, a thing to kind of reflect upon. Prayer may very well be the way that we better learn ourselves what we actually need by asking God for what we perceive to be our needs and then waiting in anticipation to see what good we truly need from him based on what he chooses to give and not give to us. Ponder that for a second. Prayer may very well be the way that we better learn ourselves what we actually need by asking God for what we perceive to be our needs and then waiting in anticipation to see what God, what good we truly need from him based on what he chooses to give and not give to us. You can kind of simplify that by saying, in him, we learn our needs. In him, we discover our needs because it's in him that he provides for what our needs are. Not what we perceive to be our needs, right? We come asking and praying and saying, God, this is a need, this is a want, this is what I would like to see happen and then God responds and gives us what we need. And sometimes it's not directly what we asked for. But we can trust. He is a father who doesn't give scorpions to people asking for eggs. He doesn't give snakes to people asking for fish. We can also trust that he is working and moving for kingdom purposes, for his name's sake. And he's only going to respond in good ways. 
We come asking and we come knocking and we come seeking and we do it persistently and we know he is going to get up in the middle of the night. He is going to act and move. And he's going to work and move in ways that meet our needs. Even if we don't fully understand what those needs are, we can bank on the fact that he does. That ought to give us all the confidence in the world to pray to him. Our application, evaluate your prayer life. Determine what changes need to be made based on what you've learned today. Does the content of your prayers potentially need to be adjusted and changed? Does your perspective need to be adjusted and changed? Do you need to shift how you even think about coming to God with your needs? Have you seen him as your father? Have you seen seen him as a father who gives abundantly good to his children? Have you seen him at times as a machine that you pull a lever and you expect to get certain things from him and then you're disappointed when you don't? Are you willing to come to him saying, here's what I think I need, but God, you give me what I do need? That's where he wants us to be. He wants us to be coming with persistence saying, God, here's what I think I need, but hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, you give me what I truly need because you know it better than I do. Let's pray together. God, we... We come to you praying that your name would be made great through our lives, through this community, through our neighborhoods, through our workplaces, through our schools. God, we want your name to be made great. We want people to see us trusting you as our Father and to be drawn to you because of the ways that you care for us as your children. But for that to happen, God, we've got to reflect to people around us that we trust you, and that we trust you to know our needs better than we do. So God, give us a a heart and a desire and a mindset that reflects that. Lord, help us to come to you praying for our daily needs. But help us to temper it with, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, because that's more important than my daily bread. Lord, help us to know that at times you don't overcome the fallenness of this world in our case. And by not overcoming it, it's for kingdom purposes as well. That when your people trust you, your name is made great. It'd be easy for for you to always give everything that we ask. People would come running from everywhere. We see see this, God, in Scripture where, where masses came when they thought that all you were doing was working miracles through Jesus. But Lord, you know us, we know you call us to a much deeper trust than that. Lord, help us to trust you when you don't give us what we ask for. Help us not to walk away saying, I prayed for for fish and eggs and, and I got serpents and scorpions. God, help us to see through that. Help us to see that in our in you, our needs are better understood. In you, we actually learn what we need. Because whatever you give us, that's what we need. Help us to trust you with that today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.